Welcome to the Parents at Work podcast, a podcast for the modern parent working in the modern world. Join us as we interview leading experts in their fields to unveil the secrets working parents need to succeed at work. Welcome to Parents at Work, a podcast for people who want to succeed and thrive at work while they have kids. This podcast is sponsored by the Spiegel Law Firm, a firm that empowers people who have been wrongfully fired or afraid that they might be. Joining me today is my co-host, Lori Mahalik-Levin, an attorney and founder of the online platform Mindful Return. And I should say, my name is Tom Spiegel, and now I will turn it over to Lori, who will tell us more about Mindful Return and introduce our guests. Great. Thanks so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. My name is Lori Mahalik-Levin, and I run a program called Mindful Return that helps new parents transition back to work after parental leave and helps employers to retain their new parent talent. I am delighted to be welcoming to the podcast today two wonderful dad physicians. Uh, We already recorded our mom physician podcast, and now we're turning to the dad side of things. Today, we have with us Dr. Steve Silvestro and Dr. George Chaucer Huang, and I want to tell you a little bit about each of them before we turn it over to them to hear about their own working parent stories. Dr. Steve Silvestro wears many hats, practicing as a pediatrician in Rockville, Maryland, a bone marrow harvesting physician at Georgetown University Hospital. He's the host of the award-winning Child Repair Guide podcast, and he's a mindfulness educator. Through it all, he's dad to two wonderful kids, now ages 9 and 11, and he's always working on new projects, some of which include his family. Turns out Dr. George Chaucer Huang also wears many hats. He is an anesthesiologist and is the father of two daughters, and he's lived in Washington, D.C. since 2000. His favorite thing to do is to spend time with his daughters, but when he's not with them or if he's at the hospital, or if he's not at the hospital, he helps to run an entertainment company in China and runs a clinic focused on treating patients with depression via ketamine infusion. So we've got two amazing physician dads here who both wear tons and tons of hats in life. Dr. Steve, I'd love to start with you. It rolls off my tongue to call you Dr. Steve, given that you are also my children's pediatrician. So I will try to eliminate the doctor and just call you Steve here. Steve, can you tell us about your own personal working parent story, please? Sure. So as you said, my kids are nine and my daughter will be 12 in a little less than a month now. And I've been in practice for a little over 10 years, which means that we had our first kid when I was halfway through my residency, which is an adventure (laughs) to say the least. My parents had me, you know, what is now considered to be kind of young. They were 25 and I had in my head that I really wanted to have kids on the earlier side so that I could be young and run around with them and coach soccer and do things like that. And so that's what we aimed for. But was working about 80-hour weeks. I was on call every third to fourth night, which means a 30-hour shift. And so with with my daughter, our first kid, it felt like I was not there much to the point that later, really even now, over a decade later, I almost feel like I have parenting PTSD where I don't want to miss out on anything. But with that first go around, when my daughter was born, I was actually kind of lucky because it's the chief resident who makes your schedule. And usually they're just a year or two ahead of you. And so hopefully they're kind of your friends because you've been working with them for years. And so I was able to save up my vacation time. Um, I didn't take vacation my first year of residency or my, the rap, second half of my first year of residency so I could save it for the second when we knew the baby was coming. 
and was able to take about four weeks off. Chief residents were kind enough to schedule pretty easy rotations for me once I got back. And it wasn't terrible. There were actually some times where I got more sleep in the hospital than my wife did at home. So it was, you know, early on, it was a challenge, partly because, you know, and George can can attest to this too. I mean, in medicine, you're seeing oftentimes the worst possible scenario for everything. So I did say that things were kind of easy when I came back, although my first rotation back, I was in the NICU. And so I had a baby who was a month old at home and I was seeing families who were hoping to have had the same experience that we just did now being thrown for a loop. And it was really, it was a big shift to sort of contrast where I was and knowing that I was really, these people were meant to be in the same place that I was right now and working with them through that. So yeah, so I can keep on going, but it was early on, you know, having a baby initially as a resident was a a pretty big change. The nice thing was that I was used to not getting much sleep. So that made some things a little bit easy early on. Mm, Thanks, Steve. Yeah, that's a really compelling contrast between your experience and what you were seeing when you went back. Um, I guess, is residency an inherently problematic time to have kids? Just if you could reflect for a minute on that decision versus waiting until after residency for folks who might be thinking about that. Yeah. Well, you know, so for pediatrics, at least, and I believe it's, it's pretty similar for most other specialties. You're doing a different rotation, a different type of medicine, a different type of schedule, usually every month. Sometimes it might be broken down into larger blocks. So your life is kind of upended a bit every couple of weeks. Uh, which definitely makes it a challenge because your life is completely upended when you bring an extra person into your family. The hardest part really is just the the sleep. You know, you're not sleeping at home, you're not sleeping at work. There are certainly times the further in you get to be where usually rotations get to be a little bit easier. You might be doing more clinic time or or cushier rotations that are reserved for more senior residents. Plus, you also know what you're doing by the time you're in your second, third year or beyond, depending on the field. So that makes things a bit easier. I know that a lot of the women I was training with were saving, at least trying to get pregnant, either in the last year of residency or a few who were hoping to become chief resident. Chief resident, at least in pediatrics, is a time where a lot of the people that I knew were getting pregnant because it's definitely an easier schedule and and things are sorted out for you a lot better. I was going to add to Steve's comments too. I think all those things are definitely true. I think um, in every residency is different, but similarities as well. The rotations, all that easier, cushier rotations. But I know I wasn't a uh, parent in residency, but I have plenty of friends that went through it. But I think the really hard part is the unpredictability of when you will get out of work. And I think that's just the huge... I know I just find it hard to imagine... You know, at least for an anesthesiologist or anesthesia resident, just being stuck in the OR with no sight and, and knowing that you have to pick up somebody from, you know, a child from daycare or, or school or anything like that. And, you know, with I think the not knowing the unknown is, I think, the most stressful part. Unpredictability of schedule is just, I think, the toughest part about being a resident. And so, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that I see. George, when did you have your kids relative to your residency? And can you tell us your personal working parent story as well? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I had my kids after after being an attending physician for a couple of years. And my path to parenthood, well, med school is med school. It's, it's always going to be tough. I threw in a lot of extra things. I have, you know, in addition to medicine, I was 
very into side hustles, I guess you call it. But I guess my passion really was music. And that's how I, actually Steve and I talked about that. And it's kind of how we kind of just linked up again too. But as a quick side note, Steve and I have known each other for a very, very long time. We actually went to Georgetown together. So when I say when I was lived in DC since 2000, that's actually around the time that I actually like knew him. And we were kind of, he was a couple years ahead of me, but known him for a very long time. That's a quick side note. So, you know, med school, I'll preface this with saying I knew I wanted to be a father. I wanted to have kids, but I just didn't know when the right time for it would be. I never really could figure out when the right time was. Whereas my wife at the time really wanted to have kids kind of on the sooner end. So part of it is because I think I just didn't know when I was ready because I feel like I operate at a, I like to be very busy. And so med school in itself is a very busy time. Then I throw in other things that I'm passionate about, which was music. And at the time I was in a touring band (laughs) during med school. So it was kind of crazy. It was touring around the country while in med school, taking exams or listening to audio and video from lectures at Georgetown, like while I'm on the bus or in the van in between shows and flying back for the exams. It was just kind of insane. And so definitely at that point, it was like a serious hobby. You know, we were doing pretty cool things and it was very busy, but I didn't think like kids would fit in that time. I knew I wanted them. I just didn't know when. <laughs> I think hopefully that, I think that speaks to a, hopefully a lot of listeners out there or dads, but, but so basically we got married after med school and then waited th- after residency to ha- start having kids. And so then even that first year, so I was like, hmm, I don't know if I'm going to be so good at this thing. <laughs> I know before I had kids, I, whenever people would show me pictures of kids, I'd be like, oh, that's nice. I never like really felt, I was like, that's cool. But then when I had a kid, whenever I show people my pictures of my kids, I'm like, don't you think they're cute? Why don't you like, don't you think it's amazing? And so like really the transition point, everybody says this happens, but I like got pretty locked in and like really enjoyed being a parent. And I think the big turning point for me was actually two years ago, my wife and I separated and got divorced and that kind of put things into a really big change my perspective and everything. And so being a working dad, physician dad that's divorced and having and splitting time with the kids, just it changed everything for me. Just really kind of made me hyper-focus on the parenting side of things. Mm, Yeah. I know parenting really has strong effects on so many of our identities and feelings about the world. It sounds like it definitely made a big shift for you as well. If both of you could zoom out and just say a couple of words about what you think it's like to be a dad in medicine these days, you know, we focus each month on a different industry or sector here. And so I'm curious to hear your reflections on what it's like to practice medicine and also be a father. Any interplay there? George, do you want to start? Sure. So medicine's, I think it's like a lot of really professions. It's a traditional system, it's a traditional field, tradition, you know, the way things used to be kind of always, you always hear about that. And when I was a resident, or when I was a doctor, well, and, and tradition is very important. And, but I think when we do zoom out in any profession, working parents are going to be very busy. And I think really only unique thing about being a parent in medicine, like I think two things really is that our job is to help other people. And when we get so busy doing that, sometimes we don't look back and help ourselves or help our family. It's hard to balance that sometimes. That's the ironic part. I think that's a unique thing. But then the other part is just, I think for some fields, there's overnight calls and those things are very, very taxing. And I think a lot of professions don't necessarily have the overnight, you know, 24 hour calls. And But I do think that being a dad in medicine these days, I think it is shifting quite a bit. There's a lot more in terms of the wellness thing. I know Steve can speak to this as well. We kind of went through the same system of at least 
in terms of wellness and mind-body medicine in Georgetown, but definitely more of a shift in medicine these days towards work-life balance and wellness and you know, physician suicide is a huge topic because we've become very focused on that. And just looking at the numbers is sometimes frightening. And so definitely a shift in medicine, at least in the big system, like the place where we trained at, you know, med, like for example, MedStar, definitely a huge shift on wellness. And are we taking care of the people that work here? And I think it kind of goes along with retention too. Just big companies like MedStar want to make sure that that physicians know that they're trying to take care of them because then it makes them feel like they're wanted and they're wanted and want to be taken care of. So I think that's been a pretty big shift in, in medicine. Yeah, I was reflecting back to an earlier conversation we had about scheduling challenges. And when you talked about overnight call, it made me think, Tom, of our conversation with the parents in theater where they have like tech nights that <laughs> run deep into the night to prepare for a performance, for example. So definitely challenges across different industries there. Steve, how about your reflections on what it's like to be a dad in the medical profession these days? Yeah, you know, so like I mentioned before, you know, one part is that you learn about all the extremes, right? And then depending on your field, you're often seeing the extremes. And I'm lucky in a sense in that I'm a pediatrician. And so I get to really see that most things for kids turn out just fine. You know, we kind of joke at work that some of the hardest families are often, or the most worried families are often those that have one or two parents as were in medicine, because without necessarily the day-to-day seeing that, that most things are just fine, you're coming at raising your kids with the sort of highlights you get in med school, it becomes really easy to worry a lot. And so I think that might be something that maybe some other physician parents may experience, but I'm kind of lucky in that I'm a pediatrician and, and get to kind of see, I don't have to worry about taking my kids in for a strep test because I can just do it here at home. And also know that a lot of the things that they are going through are just normal things that kids experience. Now, the flip side to that is that I'm sure my kids maybe will end up writing a book at some point that maybe I responded a little bit less when they were crying or things like that because, you know, we see that all the time at work and I might be a little less quick to jump at things that maybe another parent might be just because I know that, that they can work through it. You know, you touched on on things like schedules and, you know, that's definitely something that my, my family sees. I spend three and a half days working in private practice in the clinic. And so the hours there are pretty good, but I am on call. I don't have to do any overnight call going somewhere, but we get phone calls from parents and the phone calls almost routinely tend to be when we're sitting down for dinner, you know, in the middle of putting the kids to bed, when my wife and I are about to go to bed, they're, they're almost pretty routine of when you can expect when the phone calls will happen. And, you know, that's for me, that's part of the job, but I know that for my family, it can sometimes be a little bit frustrating. We just went out to dinner a few nights ago over the weekend, and I was on call, and I missed most of dinner because I had two phone calls. So I, at one point, got up, and the food was already back. The kids were already halfway done. I started to eat and got a second call, and so it can be a little disruptive. But you know, otherwise, you know, outside of that, the big piece that I think is nice is that my kids know that I'm, um, you know, hopefully doing something good. We ask our kids some questions every couple of nights at dinner. You know, what was your best part of your day? The worst part of your day? How did you help somebody today? How are you make tomorrow really great? You know, that sort of thing. And for whenever it gets to my turn to answer, how did you help somebody today? My kids will just sort of pipe up together. He went to work. <laughs> so it feels good that they feel that I'm doing something good. That's awesome. 
Thanks, Steve. Turning it over to you, Tom. All right, great, Ryan. That's some really good stuff. You know, my father, and he's now retired as a doctor, and speaking of like a doctor being sort of uh, unimpressed with, you know, minor injuries and things like that, I, and for those of you who play in a band, I was a teenager and I was playing guitar in my band and like, you know, stupid teenager ideas. There was like a rest or some point when I was playing. And so I, saw, I tried to get my guitar down and go see if I could use the bathroom and get back before my before I had to come back in. And we were playing in my basement and I was coming down the steps and my part to come in was coming up. And so I jumped and hit my head on the rafters and, you know, got myself a pretty good cut on my head. You know, as head wounds do, was bleeding pretty substantially. And so... I remember I walked into my house and my dad was reading it, was, was lying on the couch the weekend. He was reading a Stephen King book. You know, he could see the blood coming down and, and he looked at it and he said, okay, here, hold this paper towel on your head. We're going to go stitch you up. I just want to finish this chapter. <laughs> 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 you know, you know, and I had grown up with that until I was like, okay, <laughs> you say so. So your kids may not grow up to uh, resent you too much for that. Good. Whew, thank goodness. <laughs> So, and it occurs to me too, you know, I think medicine is the gold standard for masochism for particularly in residency, but, you know, it's true for a lot of professions, Laurie, I don't know your experience, but I mean, certainly as a young attorney, I mean, they don't call it a residency, but it might as well be. I remember, you know, being in the U.S. Attorney's Office, insane deal, you did a number of rotations for the first year you were there, and you just had no idea what you were doing, you're completely underwater. And, you know, people in private firms, you know, it's the same sort of thing. There's a, that one to three, sometimes four year period where you're just got to learn by doing. And it's just a tough time. So I don't, I do think your medicine and theater, those, and those are unique in the spending the night part. Although there were nights, I can remember spending nights before my office, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's office. But in any event, I think that's true of a, of a lot of professions. And I appreciate the, the, uh, the insight on that. I was just going to add somebody yesterday asked me if I was a coffee drinker. And I said, no. And they said, have you ever drank coffee? And I said, only a few nights as second, first year associate at a law firm, <laughs> you know, trying to keep myself awake all night to work on a brief or whatever. So, yes, I do recall those days as well. Yep. Exactly. You pull out all the stuff. <laughs> I oddly did not get into coffee until after med school and residency. <laughs> I like, for some reason, I don't know why, just picked it up because I thought it was. I just started enjoying it, but not necessarily for like just to stay up at night or for studying or anything like that. But now I really enjoy coffee. Yeah, I half joke, but only half joke by saying that I did not really, I had maybe three cups through all of med school residency, but then I had kids and one to a day. That's totally true. That's so funny you say that because yeah, I didn't really do much caffeine until kids. And then that's when I was like, I need espressos, double shot. <laughs> There's something about when you have to respond to a child, particularly when it's your own, that it's that much more, it's weird. Like you're going to almost be a little more sleep deprived at work, you know, like because you're mostly relying on other adults. It might be stressful, but there's something about when you, I find I'm the same way. I find a lot of times kind of my coffee consumption is interesting, but I would drink it before I was going home. Right. Like I need a boost like between the four and seven p.m. You know, so I can be present for my kids and not just dragging along. So I sympathize uh, with both of you. Well, George, let me start with you. And this may vary your answers, you know, depending on practice area and your experience in residency versus post-residency. But let me ask, what workplace supports did you find particularly helpful as you became a working parent? As I mentioned, I became a parent after residency. And I would say workplace support, it wasn't actually a thing that was instilled or like as a policy or anything like that. It was actually just the environment. One of the reasons I 
chose the place I just to work, which was at Georgetown, is because well, so my residency was eight people, was eight residents, and five of the eight residents stayed, which is unheard of. Actually, it's usually none or one stay. So, but there were a lot of people that were so. In addition to my friends, there were a lot of other people of the same similar age range, and that actually was a big support for me. Was was having close friends, basically some of my best friends actually, that worked there. They were also already parents, becoming parents. And so it was for two main reasons, really. It's A, just for sanity. It's just great to work with people that you know. It's becomes it's much more fun. But they also just get your back, you know, if you're ever in a pinch. But I would say that for the it could bounce ideas with off them. You know, it's it becomes kind of my own forum. Like, you know, instead of going to a blog somewhere I can go or some there's lots of blogs out there, but this was like my own. I just my sample size was like 10 people that were kind of in the same boat. And I could ask, oh, what kind of a stroller did you get? Or what kind of like, what are you doing about these nights? When the kids wake up at night, like, what are you doing? Have you ever done a night nurse before? No, that's too expensive. Blah, blah, blah. You know, you need two nannies or if you have an au pair, what's your au pair situation like? It's just been very, very helpful in that way to have that. And then in addition, I would say the biggest thing, scheduling, like hands down, scheduling is my number, like one of the top stressors in my life, I would say, especially with having joint custody and trying to schedule times with with my girls and having friends that understand what I'm going through and because they are going through it. It's very helpful because if I tell them like I need to leave to pick up my girls because this is actually the day I have them. Like tomorrow, totally fine. You can keep me here as long as you want or I can stay as long as you want. But you know they understand and it's hard to replicate that in other work environments, I think. But that was a big reason why I wanted to stay here because I had people that were in the same age group going through the same things. And if I ever was in a pinch and I would return the favor also. So it's not like just one-sided. If somebody else needed help, I could be the support also. So it wasn't an official... Georgetown missed our policy, but more just the environment. And so that's been the hands down biggest workplace support. Yeah, that we've heard that a number of times on the show. And we've also heard, I think we've all experienced the, I thought I knew what kids was going to be like until I had kids uh, phenomenon. I think it was one of our theater dads we had on who had kids a little later in life. And he said that he was, you know, kind of a, understood what was going on with his colleagues who had kids and he would be occasionally one of those annoying people who would uh, give parenting advice or things like that. And then he had children. He said one of the first things he did afterwards was call them up and apologize. (laughs) Because he's like, I thought I understood what you were going through, but I had no idea. So I think that's absolutely uh, vital to have people who've actually lived in what you live. Well, let me ask you, George, also kind of side of that. Are there supports for people who are coming up behind you? Are there supports that you did not have that you think it would be good for them to have as working parents? Yeah, I think one thing that I still wish we had was just, you know, even anesthesia still has some degree of flexibility. I still think that could be better. I know the times I've been stressed in terms of, you know, parenting support while at work. I think a backup care system of some sort would be, like, I've heard of places where, you know, something extreme of even just like you could there's a daycare at the hospital or workplace where you could bring them in case you're in a pinch and you can keep them there and provide care for the kids there. Or I know, like for example, we have a care.com thing where you can find somebody, but first of all, not many people know about it. It should be a little more well-publicized. But second of all, you also don't know exactly what you're going to get. I know when you're in a pinch, I think anything was helpful. 
But, or, you know, and I think another thing that, you know, system wise, that would be nice for support is maybe having some more, have some flex days where some, it's not considered a vacation day exactly, but, you know, some flexibility there would be nice. I don't really have that now, I think. And then I'd say the other thing that would, I wish I had more was this wellness thing that I mentioned before, which was just, um, and this is anything from just systems based to like wellness, like awareness and meditation and stuff like that. We don't really have that type of stuff. Uh, currently in place, I think that would be nice to have, especially in healthcare. I like care.com too. We use it. I think it's a great service, but you're right. I mean, it's um, to review the ads that come in and to screen them. It is, you know, itself a, another task that you have to get done. So I feel your pain on that one. Okay, Steve, how about you? Workplace supports, did you find particularly helpful as you were returning to work as a new parent? Well, it's funny. I mean, it's actually the same story as George, you know, there really were not any fixed organizational supports there. I mean, it was really just who I was with. I remember in my, so my first year of residency before my daughter was born, one of the residents who should have graduated the spring before I got there had taken several months off when she'd had a baby. And so she was finishing her residency when I was starting and she stuck on for an extra couple of months. And at that time, there was another resident who was pregnant. And I remember we were all at our weekly house staff meeting when all the residents get together and go through, you know, plans for the week and whatnot. And there was grumbling from some people about having to cover for this resident who was pregnant and was on leave. And the woman who was, you know, finishing out her residency after having just taken some time off, just like stole the show and said, look, guys, you are all going to be going through this at some point you need to recognize that you've got to support her so that you can be supported at some point in the future, let alone the fact that this is pediatrics, right? And we're all supposed to be touchy-feely about families and whatnot, and there's grumbling about covering for somebody who just had a baby. So that was at the start of my three years of residency. So she really set the stage with my class, and we kind of carried that through for the classes beneath us. So that when those of us who did have kids during residency experienced that, we were all there to cover for each other and to help out. And so it really was the network of people. And that was something that, so we had my son when in my first year out of residency when I was practicing. And that was something that it wasn't quite there when he came. You know, I missed one of the things that is sort of a natural piece of working in a hospital, especially as a med student or a resident, is that you are surrounded by energetic, amazing, super young people all day long, right? And you've got nurses and other students and residents and everyone is roughly around your same age and just as excited and sort of you know bushy-tailed and bright-eyed. And so the time that you're away from your kids is still, you know, it's work and it's hard, but you're with other people who are going through it with you and it's, it's kind of fun. And so when I got out and was in practice, it's a small practice, there were four of us docs, there was a handful of staff there. I was the youngest by far. Nobody else was going through what I was going through, except for the patients, the families I was taking care of. There was no real time off. I was able to take two weeks off, uh, which really counted as vacation time. And so that was a very different experience that second time around, which I think is something that is probably a bit more universal in private practice, right? Because you can look at a big organization like a hospital and you can sort of argue that you're kind of a cog. And so these are the rules and organizational structures and stuff. And this is what you can do and you can't do. 
And there should ideally be a little bit more flexibility in a private practice, but at the same time, because a private practice is small, the revenue that comes in is based on you being there. So it becomes a lot harder to take the time off when the baby first comes or when things come up down the road. And so that's what was sort of missing that other parents may potentially benefit from in other fields. I mean, I don't know how it is for you, George. Like I know, and I try not to go to work when I am sick and I don't luckily get sick too often. That's one of the benefits of being in pediatrics. You get sick all the time as a resident and then you're kind of done for a while. But yeah, I've seen docs come sick and wear masks because, you know, if you're not there, then patients can't be seen and the business sort of falters. That's the business side of it. I know plenty of doctors who don't take care of themselves because there's not as much flexibility that's built in, especially in private practice, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, and I think to your story, I think both when, you know, before I had children and now I sort of pick up on it when I hear these things, this idea that, you know, folks who are taking, you know, either leaving work early or taking time off to be with their kids. Like I think when people don't have kids, they, even if they intellectually may under, should understand different, they think of like, it's like a vacation. And, you know, and when I, occasionally I'll hear these on these radio programs, right? Where these people call in, they're like, oh, this person's got kids and they're always expecting me to pick up the slack. And I think it's a, you know, certainly a fair point. Not everybody chooses to have kids and they may have other needs in their life. But at the same time, I'm like, do you think they're skipping out of work to go eat bonbons? Like, no, like they're like stressing to get that project done or they're just like putting a pin in it, going to pick up the kid, getting dinner on the table. And then they're logging back on at, you know, 9, 30, 10 to finish up this work. You know, you're watching the bachelorette or whatever it is. So, you know, anyway, that's my gripe for when I hear that sort of thing, but okay, well, let me ask you then the flip side. So what, some of this you may have answered, what for people coming up behind you, what kind of workplace supports did you not have that you think would be helpful for them to have as they're coming back as working parents? Again, what's kind of the challenge is that in private practice, it's essentially all a small business, right? So it's all up to whoever's in charge. And so it would take a bit more of cultural shift, I think, to really move the needle so that, that you can say that you know anybody going into private practice will will be able to be covered. You, know, you can hire locum tenants with sort of a temp doctor, but it's not a super common thing to, to see happen. Like George mentioned, you know, we both have gone through Georgetown, the med school has a mind-body medicine program, teaching med students about meditation and imagery and self-care, relaxation techniques, not for use with patients, but for use for themselves. And I think that, you know, if those of us who are, who are into this can advertise that a lot more to practices to really talk about how important it is that you can't take care of, of all these patients if you're not really taking care of yourself. And, and taking care of yourself also means allowing your, your colleagues to take care of themselves and their families. You know, I think it's more of a, a philosophy shift that needs to happen over time. And, you know, we're all old fogies, I guess, right now <laughs> on this podcast, right? There's definitely discussion that, that there is that shift happening with millennial generation. I guess I'm on the cusp. I'm 1980. George, you're, you're a couple years younger, so you were probably officially a millennial. So, you know, I feel like I'm half millennial, half not in terms of mindset. But I think that, you know, that philosophy shift is happening. And so I'm curious to see where things go as a generation of people who've, who've been brought up with this importance of taking care of yourself as a philosophy. Let's go. I have a funny story about that shift. (laughs) Like you, Steve, I went through that whole wellness thing and I'm still involved with it with the residents. And uh, so every month I'll lead a group for 
just uh, for teach the residents about resilience training and all that stuff. And so I remember I was, I had a meeting at right after lunch and I needed to get coverage for a room. And I told uh, my colleagues who I'll remain nameless, <laughs> but I told them, yeah, I'm doing the uh, mind body, the wellness session with the residents. Literally the next thing they said was, wait, is that when you like just sit around and like and sing Kumbaya? I was like, oh boy, okay. And then the next thing he said was like, I thought only the girls did that, like the girl physicians did that. And I was like, oh, and gee, this is like, can't believe I'm having this conversation in 2019. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that the shift is slowly happening. Like I said, medicine's a, a very traditional, very, very entrenched in traditional, good and bad, I guess. But the word burnout, and you probably heard of it in a lot of, fields and law and everything, but medicine for sure. Like every conference you go to, there's at least one or two talks on burnout to the point where there's probably burnout on burnout talks. And But it is an issue that we're trying to address and it starts on a system and also on like personal level too. And system-wide, system wide, I think some things that could be very slow to happen is just, and you probably covered this on the, on, when you interviewed the moms, but just the amount of time off they get. It's just, I think just talking with the moms that I know that I work with, they're just very, very stressful. They're very, they don't get very much time. Yeah. They have to use a lot of unpaid time just to do what they need to do. And, and then when they get back, the transition is pretty hard and, you know, they're going from being a mom and then straight to getting slammed with calls and overnights. And I think that there's got to be a better transition point for that to happen. But maybe you covered that already in the previous show. But shift is happening, but it does seem very slow compared to other industries. Yeah, it's great. Well, I, there's some really great insights. I appreciate that. I will pass the baton back to you, Lori. Great. Thanks so much, Tom. I guess one thing I wanted to say, hearkening back to the point on backup care, was that overall, I have had a positive experience with my own law firm's use of Bright Horizons backup care. I just wanted to say that, you know, at our firm, for example, we have 20 days per year that we can use backup care either to send our child to a facility or to have someone come to our house. And you're right, George, that you never know exactly what you're going to get. Although we have come to discover that, you know, once you have someone good who comes, you can often request that person again if they happen to be available. So um, I know it's something that's picking up a lot more steam and that more and more companies are offering. Also, we had the problem at my firm of people just not knowing about the benefit. It took me 18 months into working here before I found out that that was available and I had two small children and could have used it. And so I feel like there are definitely some get the word out problems <laughs> that need to happen. So how I've heard of Bright Horizons, but what when you used it, what was the, like to get into the nitty gritty, like, like from the time that you knew you needed help to going on, like how fast was that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's depended. The earlier you call, obviously the higher likelihood that there will be someone available. But I have known, for example, the night before, like my child threw up at night and then I knew that they weren't going to be going in the next day. So I'd call Bright Horizons at 11 p.m. and they would have someone, you know, there at eight o'clock the next morning. I've also woken up in the morning and had the kid with a fever and it's, you know, 536 in the morning and I've been able to get someone, not every time, but, you know, often within three or four hours coming to my door, which I think is, you know, pretty respectable. They work with a bunch of different nanny agencies and everybody's vetted and that sort of thing. And so, I mean, there are mixed experiences depending on who you talk to and who has shown up at the door and whatever. But on balance, it's a benefit I prefer having to not having for sure. And I'm sure my employer thinks the same. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to shift back to a question around what changes 
you both think are happening in the medical field that are affecting working parents, even if they're not specifically about working parents. Now, I know you've talked about the philosophy shift toward wellness and trying to avoid burnout and emphasis on mindfulness, particularly in the generations that are coming up now. But are there any other broad industry shifts that you think are having an effect on working parents? Uh, Steve, you want to start with that? Sure. You know, for one, I think that telemedicine is going to be something that is huge. The idea that you can connect to a doctor if your kid is sick and not have to leave the house is going to be massive. You know, you can call in and find out, have your child diagnosed before you have to decide, do I need to get somebody to watch them? Do I have to take the day off of work? There is a company that is not doing as well right now because of some FDA regulation, but it's called uh, Scanadu. And I used to work on a project that was trying to bring more telemedicine directly to, to families. And it kind of fell through, but we came, we were working this at the same time this company was coming out. And I just, I was amazed. You can probably still find the video on YouTube. It's S-C-A-N-A-D-U. And they had this dramatized video of basically a device that would connect to your phone through Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. And it has a camera on it. And you plug in, it has a drop down list of questions, you know, child fever 103, vomiting. One of the things it will tell you to do is check a, a urine test, and it comes with a strip of urine tests. So you have your child pee. A urinalysis test is basically just a color change on a strip. So this little Wi-Fi camera scans that, sees what you have based on also what you plugged in with your questions and the answers, and it will say, oh, child might have a urinary tract infection. Go see your doctor. Or the other example they had in the video was 103 fever. The fever is gone now. Here's a rash. You scan the picture of the rash. It checks its cloud database of rash pictures and says, well, based on what you told us in that picture, it's roseola. Your kid is fine. Don't go to the doctor. My world as a pediatrician is going to be completely different when that sort of thing is happening. And because it's going to be a lot better and a lot easier for parents to, to figure out what's going on and also to feel more confident. You know, that's just the second piece that I would say is I think something that is changing kind of tangentially to medicine is that because we have so much information available out there, it's overwhelming to most parents. You can't really scroll through your Facebook feed without seeing one or two articles that are telling you that you're doing it wrong. And so the abundance of information that we have, the ability for anybody to be an expert and proclaim themselves as such, I think has a, a huge impact on parents' confidence in raising their kids. And so it's it's up to all of us who are out there, you guys and you know me and George and the presence that we have on social media and elsewhere to try and put a dent in that by by giving folks information that they can really benefit from and use and, and trust. But yeah, that information overload is definitely something that I think is sort of is touching on medicine and affecting parents for sure. Yeah. When you describe tools like Scanadu, my first thought is, wow, how cool. And my second thought is, wow, I suspect that could just completely butt up against that concept of the traditional medicine field and democratizing it. And what's the place of the physician in that? And so many questions, right? Sure. And you know, I mean, I came into pediatrics with the idea of the Norman Rockwell paintings, you know, that I worked with Patch Adams. I did all this stuff where I was like, you know, this, the human connection is so important. And it really is. But now being in practice for over a decade, I also see how many of the visits don't really need to be seen by a doctor. 
And I'm not saying that to criticize parents in any way. I think that part of it is is us in medicine. You learn in med school that you can make a diagnosis based on the history alone 80% of the time. One of the guys who trained me used to say that you can diagnose, you can tell from a door whether a child is sick or not. And it's true. But at the same time, what we are really doing is, you know, if a family calls and says, my child has X, Y, and Z, and we say, sure, come on in. But I can tell based on what you told me over the phone that your child is probably fine. I'm probably not going to do an antibiotic. And, you know, all I'll do is offer your advice when you show up here. In a sense, I kind of feel like that's a little bit of a disservice to the family. Because you might come and I say, yep, everything is fine. But I worry that in the back of a parent's mind is the thought that, well, the doctor was worried enough based on what I said, that even though everything is fine this time, that same scenario still should warrant another doctor's visit because it might not be fine that next time. And I think that tools like, you know, the sort of idealized version of what a scanner do would be or that sort of thing, you're right, it's going to democratize medicine. And I think ultimately it's a good thing because I think it's going to empower people to really be able to take care of themselves in a way that I think that we're kind of stripped from some Mm. families just because of the structure of how, how practice is built. Yeah. Thanks for those reflections. George, how about you? What changes do you think are happening in the medical field that are having an effect on working parents? I think I don't have a whole lot more to add for, at least for my field, anesthesia telemedicine is not as applicable because you kind of have to be there in the moment for that. As far as I know, (laughs) if you heard anything, there's a scan to do for uh, anesthesia, let me know. But (laughs) to date, I've not heard anything. But I think the other shifts I was talking about was just the whole idea of philosophy and mentality of wellness. I think that's the big thing really that affects working parents. Back to you, Tom. Okay, great. Yeah. You know, I think it's the whole, you know, virtual world we're starting to live in offers a lot of different possibilities. But you know, coming to your point, Steve, you know, trying to decide between just, you know, when do you just need the transmission of information to make a decision? And when do you need human interaction? You know, we find like in our firm, we, you know, we are primarily virtual, like all our attorneys, you know, almost all of our staff at rare occasion can work from home, we set them up, but we have a brick and mortar office too, for people to come in if they want. And, you know, it's, I found, the hard way sometimes that while there's great opportunity for that, like why have an attorney drive in, particularly in this area, you know, an hour and a half commute to come sit in an office to do the same work that he or she can do sitting in their you know pajamas as long as they got a laptop and a Wi-Fi. But, you know, what we found just as an organizational culture is, you know what, as human beings, we were designed to act face to face. So we've had to, that's not to say that we, you know, we're now back to brick and mortar. It's just that we've had to be a lot more intentional in our virtual communications, whether it's, you know, video or phone or, you know, Slack or whatever it may be to capture the things that happen organically when you're face to face with someone. So, I mean, clearly I'm not a doctor. I don't know what you're, you know, what I can imagine that there are times when a patient presents with, yes, symptoms that you can easily treat just by the, the metrics that you don't need to be in the room to read. But when you're face-to-face, something else comes up that's equally as important that might not come up if you just have a phone and a camera and a, you know, pee stick and all that. Not that those aren't great things, but I think that's part of the, that's the sweet spot, spot as we kind of move into this to figure out. That's right. That's the art yeah. of medicine. Yeah. I guess my question for that, I'm not, I haven't done any telemedicine before. I guess my question would be, and the, 
you know, in the scope of what we're talking about, does that afford, does telemedicine afford more time as a parent to do, does it increase work-life balance or enhance it? Or does this mean you're just doing more telemedicine, you know, like you're doing more of that? Yeah. You mean for the provider? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Does it mean you're working more or just makes it more flexible? So you have more time. What's the experience been there for that? I don't know because we're not doing it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, but, I'll um, yeah. But no, I think there definitely are some docs I know who have, who essentially like telecommuting for anything else. You know, they get to be home. Sometimes you get to sort of pick your schedule and say, there are services that doctors can participate in where you're essentially sort of working for a company and you sign up for a shift. And so you get to choose your schedule and your home for a couple of hours and available on your computer. You know, so definitely, yeah, for a physician parent, there's also the potential that it intrudes a bit, right? Because if, you know, maybe something that you could have talked about if you're on call at night and you could have talked about in just a three or four minute phone call is now sort of a 10 minute Skype visit, you know, might intrude a bit too. No, I bring it up mainly as for non-medical parents. You know, I think that ultimately sort of for everybody else's life, I think it's going to make things a lot easier when we get there. Upsides are going to be huge. I mean, there'll be unintended consequences, but I mean, as a, I think we all can, not your doctors maybe, but I think any parent listening to us like, hell yeah, I'd love to be able to, because I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have been like, okay, so do we take them in or not? It's like, are they really that sick? Like, you know, because we're dual, you know, both attorneys and we're both like, okay, who's drawing the short straw to, you know, decide if this fever, and of course, we, you know, they got the nurses line and all that, but, but just as a parent, and I'm sure Lori would probably say the same, to have that option would just be tremendous. So, all right, well, on to our last segment here, and we'll I'll start with you, George. So what is your number one piece of parenting advice or work-life balance advice or returning to work with kids advice that you would give to somebody, let's say a doctor who is asking you about, you know, what they should or shouldn't do thinking about a, a kid? In one hand, I feel like I'm not qualified at giving advice because I feel like I'm still figuring it out myself and just trying to keep my head above water. So, but I think for me, it would be is actually the time that you do spend with your kid. I think just presence. And that's a big thing for me. It's just being present. So I think the advice would be the time that you do have with them. First of all, try to make time for them if you don't, because they'll appreciate it. <laughs> but once you're there, just be present. And to me, that means I try to not have my phone anywhere near me. I think that's probably the most, maybe a takeaway is just get rid of, don't get, use your phone if, if possible. And if you do have your phone, uh, you know, I try to avoid going on any apps while I'm there because it's just, I think it's distracting. And I've done it. I'm guilty of that myself, like very much so where I've been on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And, and I just realized I'm not present at all. And, this, and now like now I've been not doing that and this is not to... It's not a parent shaming thing at all, but I'll see friends with their kids and they're doing it. And, and that's fine. I think for me, I just get, I know that my time, since I do joint custody, I know my time with them is just a lot shorter in the grand scheme of things. And so I'm just really hyper vigilant. I'm being present. And I think that's enhanced my relationship with, with my girls. And I keep this mantra in my head where it's whatever time I spend with the kids, it's never wasted. So it's, I just really try to keep that in my head and really it's helped me, I think, develop a better relationship with them and it makes me enjoy my time with them a lot more. So I guess that'd be my advice. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's good. Um, and following to that, is there a book or an article that stands out in your mind as something that really made an impact on you as to how you function as a parent? Yeah, so I've read a few books. So just to start off with, the book that I kind of, I find myself referencing going back to is How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen. I think it's a pretty popular one. That's a good one. But I think the one that this is one I probably maybe 
not many people are aware of, but I read these blogs. It's not kind of indirectly about parenting, but it's it, they're finance blogs. It's there was one called White Coat Investor, which is the big one. He's guy Jim Dolly is like the godfather of investing. Another guy named Physician on Fire, who's another physician. And basically these are just about so there's a lot of overlap in parenting, but it's about personal finance and how to handle your loans and how to handle money. Pretty much <laughs> like, you know, you have a financial plan, a game plan. And I think that actually is relates to parenting a lot because as a working parent, don't have a lot of time to deal with finances and you may not want to. So that's something I'm really into is this idea of trying to navigate finances as a parent. Because you can either go one with two ways. You can, if you have no desire to deal with finances at all, you just hire somebody. But I'm a big advocate for physicians and I tell residents the same thing. Let's just say if you could read this big book on renal physiology and med school, and if you could read a similar size book and knowing that could save you like let's say a million dollars, would you read it? No, yeah, of course you would read it, right? You read this whole book on renal physiology and you may not even care about it. But if you could read a book about finances and how to deal with their loans and how to save your kids in a 529 or whatever, like, would you do it? Yeah, you would think you would. But if not, go to a financial advisor. <laughs> but I will say that a lot of professionals that don't deal with money are very, very poor at dealing with finances. And I think doctors are the number, probably one of the top because they're it's the whole idea of delayed gratification and then also not having any coursework on how to do finances. You know, you're 30 by the time you're done and or older, and then you have kids. Where's that quote unquote doctor car? Where's that quote unquote doctor house? So those blogs and books are, I think it's been the most, that's been very, very influential on how I manage my personal finances, how I manage kids' finances, and how I teach them about how eventually we'll teach the girls about money and how to spend it and the value of it and value of saving and all that stuff. So one was, you said, physician on fire. And what was the first one? Yeah, the first one is White Code Investor. It's a very robust blog and um, it's got a book also. I think it's worth putting on the show notes. Uh, physician on fire is also a great one. And fire, the whole idea about fire is um, fire stands for financial independence, retire early. And me personally, I'm not really, I'm not super interested in retiring early, but I am interested in financial independence. And but that kind of goes to this whole idea of just financial independence allows you time to spend with your things you want to spend on. So it could be family. And that's what I'm interested in. So that's really what I want to attain is to not be so stressed out about my daily finances or my long-term finances, but to get a point where I can spend my time on the things I care about. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And so, of course, when you're not with your kids, uh, what is the one piece of technology that you you find that has been really helpful for you as a working parent? I love tech and I usually like I'm all about the all new iPhones and all this stuff. But <laughs> the funny thing is that the technology I think that I use the most is probably the least low tech, but really it's just my, there's two apps on my phone that I really just use. This Google Calendar is just so essential <laughs> for me. Everything I have is on there and I share it with the girl's mom and it's just, I have to look at it every day because scheduling is such a huge thing for me in this role. And so Google Calendar is a life changer. And then also the Apple Notes, it probably sounds so like pedestrian to say the two apps, but those are literally the ones I use the most. And the Apple Notes app is very robust. You do, I put all my kids' lessons and on the calendar, and then I put up, I, just, I, I write so many notes on for life and also for my girls and just to-do lists. And you can, take, you can scan documents, like I'll scan my immunization stuff for the girls like on my notes and you can search it easily. It's kind of like what Evernote was. Evernote used to be like the top app in the app store for productivity. And 
I think notes is pretty much the same. It's actually just as good now. I can upload documents like immunizations or whatever, licenses for medical licenses. I can upload that to my Gmail super easily. And but I'm a little bit of a I think a lot of physicians in general, a lot of especially anesthesia, you get to be really OCD and I mean that in a good way. But I am pretty OCD about things and having things on the notes is very, very handy as a working parent. Very essential. Yeah. No, we, it's, it's funny. You are not the first person to mention uh, Google Calendar. So, so uh, note you are the first person to mention notes. So, uh, points for that one. All right, George. Thanks. All right, turning to you, Steve. Same questions. What's the, for a working parent? What's your number one piece of advice? So, I love George's comment. You know, be present. I think that's massive. What I would say is to find a balance between striving for something more and being happy with what you have. You know, we've talked a lot about mindfulness, and and one of the key components in practicing and teaching mindfulness is to recognize and accept things as they are rather than fighting against them and wishing that things were different. You know, it's basically the serenity poem, right? To recognize the things that you can change and you can't change and how to know the difference. You know, there's so many things in parenting that you just can't change. Maybe you can't change your job because of finances. You can't change your kid. You know, there's sort of a, a line that a lot of us use in this field of you have to parent the kid that you have as opposed to the kid that you wish you had. And so trying not to create suffering by wishing those things were different will make your life so much better. But then I also would wager that for a lot of working parents, there are things that you want to do with your life that might be different than what you're doing right now. There might be things happening in your family that you recognize are stale or have you in a rut and you need to change and not changing them. You're not acting on that feeling is going to leave you feeling frustrated, which then is ultimately not going to leave you as good of a parent as you'd like to be. So recognizing what matters to you and your family and recognize the things, the difference between the things you can actually do something about and the things you can't do anything about. I think that's key to being the parent and the person that you want to be. No, I think that's great advice. So then how about on the, the smaller board questions, a book or an article that has really made an impact on you? Yeah. So for books, it's funny because there are a gajillion parenting books, right? I'm a huge fan of Amy Morin, M-O-R-I-N. She wrote a, a mega viral blog post several years ago called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. She, a year or two ago, came out with 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. And it's a great discussion of things that really help with parents' own mental health that can also help to raise strong, confident, empowered kids. So that's a great book. You know, you mentioned articles. There is an article, old article from the 1920s by, I'm going to look this up because I always forget the guy who wrote it, W. Livingston Larned called Father Forgets. And it's basically something that I think a lot of us have probably experienced where you have a really hard day with the kids. And he goes through and he outlines all the things that his kid sort of did that were challenging for the two of them that day. and then. He goes in to look at his son while his son is asleep, and he's like, oh, my God, <laughs> what happened today? You, know, you are still just this little person who's still trying to learn and figure things out, and of course, you're going to make mistakes. And you know, I think, again, I have experienced that myself, and seeing that written out by somebody in words was really moving. You know, reminder that our kids are learning, but also we're learning, too. You know, we're trying to figure out this whole parenting thing. There is no instruction manual. And so I think recognizing, reminder to recognize your own imperfections 
uh, which lets you then accept those of your kids too. No, I think that's very profound. And then on the uh, less profound topic, piece of technology that you find you really rely on for as a working parent. Yeah. So speaking of things like lists and notes and calendars and stuff, Wonderlist for the iPhone. It might be on Android too. I'm not sure. It's a wonder with a U. It's amazing. So I'm somebody that has millions of to-do lists. I have a today to-do list, next few days to-do list, (laughs) brand to-do, podcast to-do, website to-do, videos to make, you know, all these different things, song ideas, and you can create multiple lists. But also what's nice is you can share them. So my wife and I, we've got a grocery store list and an Amazon list and a Costco list and a Christmas gift list and, you know, and updates live so that one of us can be at Safeway. And before we'll leave, we'll say, hey, there's something that you want, just pop it on the list. And like, you can open it up and see things being added or taken off as it's live. So we joke all the time that one of us, especially my wife, is usually is in the grocery store like every two to three days. And so (laughs) this makes life a lot better in that respect. And then um, me personally, I know that just because the sort of operative word for parents is always busy. And that's definitely the case in our lives at home. You know, I get a lot of my best ideas for the podcast or articles or videos I want to make in a shower or on the car ride to and from work. So yes, it's sort of a lame answer, but the iPhone in general, because yeah, you can pop open Siri and say, create a new note and then just talk to it and you've got it. Or the voice memos, I do that all the time with song ideas or if I'm giving a talk and then have some idea about some way I want to explain something, I'll say, start a new voice memo. And then it just, you can do it while driving. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's good stuff. Well, before I sign off and turn it back over to Lori, Stephen, George, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a great session. And then finally, just one plug for my book, You're Pregnant, You're Fired. If anyone wants a copy, you can email our office manager, Angela Miller. She's at amiller at spigalaw.com. And we also include a link in the show notes. We'd be happy to send you one. So Lori, I will turn it back over to you. Thanks so much, Tom. It was a real pleasure to speak with you today, Steve and George. Thanks for your time and all your wonderful advice and tips. And please stay tuned as we turn to yet another industry or sector and talk to moms and dads in that area next month. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This was fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Parents at Work podcast. Are you interested in learning more about our show, our hosts, or today's guest? Do you have a comment or question you'd like to share with the Parents at Work community? Then contact us at www.spigglelaw.com slash podcast. We'll see you next time.